Hey friends, thanks for tuning into the podcast. Don't you hate when you die, leaving behind a fortune instead of wishes meant to honor people from all over the world who provide a great benefit to mankind? And then people left in charge of your fortune, left in charge of ensuring that your wishes come true, don't obey them? I hate that, man. That bums me out. That bums me out bad when that happens to me. And I can only imagine that that bums Alfred Nobel out as well. That is why this episode features Dr. Brian Keating. Brian recently wrote a book titled Losing the Nobel Prize, a story of cosmology, ambition, and the perils of science's highest honor. The book proposes a set of reformations that Brian thinks will improve the Nobel Prize and fulfill the intentions that Alfred Nobel had for the prize when he died many, many, many years ago. I think the book, personally, I read it. I think it is an incredible exploration of the human side of science, and I mentioned this in the podcast. And I would like to see some of his recommendations seriously actually considered for the sake of the Nobel Prize and its future, because it can only operate with this real primitive set of rules for so long. Brian is also a cosmologist and a professor of physics at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. He's out there in San Diego. San Diego, that's essentially Mexico, but it is nevertheless not Mexico. I meant to talk with Brian about cosmology, but once I read his book, I thought that I would just utilize the short amount of time we had to talk about his proposed reforms that he would like to see. In the future, I hope to have Brian back on, where we could sit down for maybe two hours and talk a lot more about cosmology. But I thought that with Nobel season being right around the corner, it was much more interesting, much more topical that we spend a lot of time talking about the Nobel Prize and and the types of things that we hope to see change or that he hopes to see change and that I agree with. I don't want to give you the idea that any of these ideas are my own. I hope that you enjoy the podcast. hope you enjoy our conversation. And I thank you for tuning in. This is the State of the Universe with your host, Brendan Drackler. Four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the great Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating. Brian, I read your book over the past two weeks. Okay, I've been steadily, steadily working my way through it, and it is an incredible book. I think that it captures an aspect of science that is so rarely seen from the outside looking in, and I think it's an incredibly important aspect, and that is the human aspect of science, right? We're not all just computers sitting in a lab plugging away, and we, we, we're not AI, right? We have thoughts, we have feelings, and your book captures it beautifully. <laughs> wow, I don't know what to say, Brendan. That's uh, very high praise. You know, I wrote it for you. I, I say in that, you know, I wanted it for young scientists um, as well as older ones, but in particular young scientists such as yourself and your colleagues and, and my graduate students. And I, I really didn't care about the implications of what, say, the Nobel Prize Committee might think or people that were hostile towards the message because the highest praise I've gotten is from dozens, literally dozens and dozens of people uh, like yourself who have told me that it had a positive impact on their life. And that's what I wanted it to do. So I'm deeply appreciative for your sentiment. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of people out there 
who work in science and and maybe from the outside looking in science seems almost easy in, in the toll it takes on the human mind but it isn't that way there's a lot of trials and tribulations that go with being a scientist and specifically working in collaborative efforts and and being sure that your efforts are appreciated and the book does a good job of capturing that too yeah i appreciate that the you know the modern misconceptions of science i think are deeply rooted in the notion that you know science is done by you know basically lone white male americans you know toiling away uh you know until they're visited by genius but it's really not indicative at all of how science takes place maybe it was back in the late 1890s but um but nowadays you know you benefit so much from interactions with your colleagues peers friends and even lay people and their interest in science and and that's why it's so important to in my opinion do outreach of the type that you're doing and rt is doing through podcasts such as this to really get back to people that in all honesty let's be let's be real they pay our taxes right so we really have the uh, duty to repay them with knowledge that their hard-earned dollars paid for right yeah i should add uh this podcast is 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 completely my own rit if you're listening to this do you hear that dr brian keating thinks that you're putting some (laughs) funds behind this so maybe (laughs) maybe a stipend increase could be in my future but that's besides the point uh the point is i want to talk about losing the nobel prize your book what i thought we could do brian is towards the end of the book you sort of summarize your thoughts, your your ideas about changes that should take place in the way the Nobel Prize is given, and you, and you summarize them into five major categories. I was hoping we could just go through each and, and talk about each and why it's important that changes take place in that avenue. How's that sound? Sounds great. Okay, so number one, you suggest we add prizes in vibrant new scientific disciplines. What's important about that? And why is the way we do it now, in my opinion, horrible? But you didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's pretty detrimental, I think, uh, towards the actual conduct of how science takes place, in, in my opinion. Uh, so why it's important to add new ideas and new... So the main issue that I see is that uh, the type and practice of science and the variety of science is really you know, kind of uh, not reflected in the way that the let's say the prize categories themselves are orchestrated for the Nobel Prize. And that leads to sort of a distorted perception on the part of the public as to what scientific fields are important. You know, if you go to, say, the National Science Foundation, which may or may not fund, you know, part of your research stipend, it funds a lot of mine. If you go to their website or the Department of Energy's website, you'll see so-and-so won the Nobel Prize, you know, after being supported by us. And and, and that's natural that they want to promote their great successes, but the Nobel Prize really has no other peer, and when you only have five categories originally that Alfred Nobel delineated as being worthy of a prize, the economics prize was added much, much later, almost 100 years after his death. You know, there's not even biology isn't even a subject, let alone, you know, astrobiology. But if you think about how interdisciplinarity is really the hallmark of modern science and how you really benefit from the broadest spectrum, the broadest panorama of ideas, perspectives, experiences, especially in my field of experimental physics, where you won't live long enough to get all the experience of colleagues that you may uh, you know, come to work with from around the world. And so 
so too with the prizes. I think there should be new prizes that actually, you know, stimulate uh, and reflect how science is much more collaborative, and that collaboration is really, you know, kind of illustrated by new fields that are really, you know, these kind of hyphenated fields where you've got, you know, planetary science, exobiology, and and things like that, along with just how about, you know, ordinary biology, <laughs> right? Uh, and let alone things like mathematics. You know, most people think there is a Nobel Prize in mathematics, but there's not. Uh, so they felt free to add Nobel Prizes, say, in, in economics, and give Nobel Prizes in, say, you know, in, in physiology to physicists, who turned out to be, say, Watson and Crick, or not give it to Rosalind Franklin, who was a physicist, uh, for the same discovery of DNA, then I think, you know, they should feel free to update the prizes. It's only been 121 years, after all. I tend to agree with you. I think that, in many ways, the, the Nobel Prize ceremony should be very much like some of the things Hollywood does. They actually tend to do some stuff right, like the Grammys or the Emmys or, or the Music Awards. I'm not very familiar with what yep. they do, but, but one thing they do that I like is they sort of spread awards ac across genres. What's the best comedy? What's the best rap song? What's the best country song? You know, mm -hmm. and, they, and I think that that is important. It is fundamentally important because it, it truly is hard to compare apples to oranges. What makes a, a finding in gravitational wave physics more important than one in condensed matter physics? Mm -hmm. We don't know. Yeah, we, think, we can't yeah. draw, we can't separate in a logical fashion. So it seems weird that we sit here and continue to try. Yeah. What's nice about the awards, you know, in Hollywood or, you know, Nashville or whatever is that the, you're right. They do reflect the spectrum of the field. Whereas, you know, the field of physics is not defined by one particular discovery that, by the way, was probably made 30, 40, 50 years ago in some cases. And, you know, for that reason, I think they get it right in that they recognize the entire, you know, the, the community of creators. Now, some people say, oh, you'll dilute it if you, you know, the prestige of it. I, I think that's basically nonsense. I don't, I don't think there are many you know, scientists who necessarily set out, although I was one of them when I was your age, I hate to sound like that, but, you know, who really desperately wanted, but, you know, I, I think that's my own particular, you know, at least my, my character at that stage in my life, um, which, you know, as you can tell from reading the book, has been reevaluated uh, by virtue of the encounters, plural, that I had with the Nobel Prize. But nevertheless, I think, you know, having uh, having so few actual creators in society, people that actually create things. I mean, you look at something like a YouTube video that has billions of views or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of views. You know, those are just consumers. Those are people that are consuming. And that's fine. I consume a lot, too, on YouTube and, and podcasts, etc. But it's much harder, as you know, to be a producer and so, um, so producers deserve a certain, you know, sense of respect uh, when their accomplishments lead to the betterment of society, and in our case, science. And I think by broadening the limited, you know, retinue of, of awards eligible uh, for for category in terms of categories, I think that would do a great benefit towards recognizing the actual producers in society, at least in the society of scientists that we inhabit. Yeah, yeah, I, I fundamentally agree. Do you know why? Maybe you mentioned this in, in in your book, but if you did, I may have overlooked it. Do you know why the Nobel Committee decides not to award, say, biology or uh, other mathematics? Yeah. Yes. Why? Do you know why? Uh, no. So nobody really knows why uh, the the you know the the categories were 
intended originally by Alfred Nobel clearly to benefit inventions and discoveries right. that were basically hard, what we would call hardware. You know, nowadays there are theoretical investigation, you know, uh, you know, characteristics and properties of space and time that are that are um, mentioned. But by the same token, back then. He was an inventor, Alfred. He had 355 patents. The most profitable was deadly dynamite. And he wanted to recognize things that would be invented, say, in a physicist you know, laboratory, which would then make its way perhaps into a physician's office, as did indeed happen with the very first Nobel Prize in 1901 for the X-ray machine. And, and that had immediate benefits, this invention, to all of mankind, which is the catechism, the mission statement of the Nobel Prizes to this day. So I, I agree. I mean, I think the, the, the main purpose that Alfred had was really to, to stimulate inventions rather than, you know, kind of abstract, arcane, theoretical pathways that, that you know, tends to go to in some cases nowadays. Yeah, I don't know if it would work any more to to award inventions with the Nobel Prize. Uh, part of the reason I say that, and I, and I thought about this, is because a lot of the inventions that take place now, there are a lot that take place in science. I'm not saying that. A lot of inventions mm-hmm. take place accidentally in science before they're commercialized, but a lot of important inventions yep. also take place in the commercial landscape. And a lot of companies do not do much marketing of their inventions at first because they like to use them for their own benefit. So I think that for that Absolutely, reason yeah. for for that reason you might not see a lot of inventions taking place in the scientific landscape that really benefit humanity because they will take place on a commercial level first and be hidden from us. I I, I agree there's a lot of kind of uh, that cloistering Intentionally, which has gone on in scientific history since you know at least the time of Galileo and, and Leonardo da Vinci and others who wanted to protect that was their currency that was their their cachet where their scientific ideas or inventions or creations and you know very little has changed you know we we all have different needs and we do try to you know ignore them as much as we can to kind of um, for the betterment of society. Uh, but you know there are famous cases where you know drug companies were sponsoring research and then advocating to members of the of the Nobel committees to potentially award the Nobel Prize to their own so- scientists supported by their grants. You know, so very many conflicts of interest, especially in the medicine field, which is ironic to me because you know the medical field actually has classes on ethics. So you know it's a common question if you have something that can benefit. You know, the world is it, is it is it really something that you can patent and and make money off of, or should you be like Jonas Salk and let it go free and and then you know potentially miss out on winning the Nobel Prize as he did? So I think all these reasons are complex ones, but at least you know there's lip service or perhaps more than lip service for medical practitioners in terms of what ethical um, courses they take. But we physicists very rare. I don't know if you've taken any courses that RIT required, and you know certainly we don't have required courses. Here here in ethics of a physicist and, and some propose that we should actually invoke such such you know basically uh, instead of a Hippocratic oath uh, Avi Loeb at Harvard calls it a Galilean oath that we really strive to uphold the virtues of the scientific method um, and that would include not not privatizing you know scientific discoveries but really publicizing them and and disseminating them as fast as possible to the world at large. Yeah, I have never in my at my undergraduate institution I haven't taken any sort of ethics courses in that in that 
world. Mm-hmm. And then as a graduate student, I've never taken any ethics courses either. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that there would actually be a lot of people opposed to this idea because I could I can picture this now with some of some of the people that I knew throughout my career mm-hmm. as a student. Uh, they would say that the chances of the individual student encountering some groundbreaking discovery or some some life altering uh, finding or invention is so small that it would be <laughs> a, a waste of time to sort of put everyone through that through that uh, right predicament yeah but on the other hand you know there's many many more much more common situations that i'll tell you one that comes up very frequently we have a paper it's going to be a big result it's going to get a lot of attention uh you know should we publicize it uh if we do who's the lead author uh well so and so she's up for tenure at her university should she get priority over you know the grad student who did more work you know, than her, et cetera. And then, you know, what if we make a mistake in our press conference and it's on the front page of the New York Times and we really, you know, would like to to recant, recall, you know, that announcement or disconfirm it or whatever. Do we hold another press conference to do that? Um, you know, what if, what are the, what are the real responsibilities? And I think with the Nobel Prize, the higher the stakes, the more the burden on people. So there's been many, many examples. I recount some of them in my book. Where, you know, say a graduate student made a discovery and then her thesis advisor gets all the credit for it and she doesn't get the Nobel Prize and he does. Well, he didn't turn down the Nobel Prize in protest. I think it just shows the, you know, kind of um, the fallacy that scientists are this dispassionate people that that want to do science purely for the sake of doing science. I think there's ultra, you know, ulterior motives at work in some cases as well. And I think, you know, that to the extent that that's publicized and not and not really recanted that does a disservice to science and scientists in particular. Yeah, and the the instance you're mentioning I imagine is Jocelyn Bell. Uh, because She's of, one of many, yeah. There's yeah. M- many, many students like women like that um, whose discoveries were really, you know, uh, they're co-opted or superseded by males, male discoverers. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's uh, fam- famous examples dating back, you know, as long as the Nobel Prize, uh, the first Nobel Prize, you know, given to more than one person was to Marie and P- Pierre Curie in 19, uh, early 1900s. And that Nobel Prize uh, was originally going to only go to Pierre Curie. And then he said, I won't accept it unless my wife gets it. Now, you know, that was his wife. You know, maybe they didn't, you know, he didn't want to have a bad, you know, kind of uh, feelings or and, and have a lack of peace in the home. But, right. but nevertheless, he, he did the right thing. And I'd like to think he would do it even if she wasn't his wife because she did a lion's share of the work. But, you know, no one's done that since. No one's turned down the Nobel Prize and said, actually, you know, this Nobel Prize should also go to so-and-so. In physics, it, it, people have turned down the Nobel Prizes in peace and and refused to show up to accept them in literature. Um, but, you know, sort of semi-moral grounds. But I think the ethics of, of the prize are such that, and given this publicity and, and public attention and claim, that it really behooves us to really, you know, maybe they should give an ethics class, you know, <laughs> before they accept the, the prize, because I think they have a higher obligation than they may realize. Yeah, that's fair. I, I want to backtrack on something you said earlier uh, about ambition, about how when you were a young scientist, in my shoes, you, uh, you your goal was to win the Nobel Prize. Uh, yeah. I want to I wanna mention that, because I don't see that much in my peers. I don't see that drive mm-hmm. much. But I completely, in fact, when I read your book, I could relate with you a lot in that in that way. 
because all of the scientists I talked to two, two weeks ago, I had Francis Halsen on the podcast. If you're familiar with yeah. Francis Halsen. Yeah, I know him well. He is someone who made monu- – well, he, him and his group Ice Cube made monumental discoveries this year when they tracked the first cosmic neutrino and linked it to a blazar yeah. and, and all that fun mm-hmm. stuff. Listen to that episode if you're interested, listeners. But, yeah. Um, the point is when I mentioned to him the prospect of winning the Nobel, he gave me the same sort of speech that everyone seems to give me when I mention the prospect of winning the Nobel. And they say, well, it doesn't matter. It, it, it would be a, a good addition to my career, but I don't need it. I personally don't fundamentally agree with that mindset. I don't know. I think it's that I, I, uh, I align myself too much with like the sports mindset, but that's not me. Me is like, no, I want to win the Nobel Prize. I don't want to win one Nobel Prize. I want to win three Nobel Prizes, you know? <laughs> like that's that, – because mm-hmm. to me, it's very important to set goals, okay? And in science sometimes, I think it's very hard to set goals that are not vague, and I think it's important that you find a goal and not leave it vague. Make sure that it is specific. For example, imagine you're a young nine-year-old kid and you want to be a great football player, right? What does that mean? What does what if you if you come home from football practice and you look at your mom and you say, "Mom, I, I want to be a great football player." What does that actually mean? It, I don't think it means anything. Mm-hmm. I don't think it carries with it anything. Right. But how do you? How yeah, do you, there's, there's, there, you know, there's this a popular meme called the law of attraction. I, I know, you know, you probably haven't, you know, encountered that in your, you know, in your class in celestial mechanics yet. But and and I don't, I hope that you won't. But this is this notion that if you if you want something bad enough and you visualize it and you have your vision board up and you blah 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 and kind of uh, you know really focus on it. You know, you tell yourself, "I'm rich. I'm rich. I see myself. I'm rich." You know that you will become rich. And there's a movie called The Secret and a book that sold you know a million times more than my book will ever sell, uh, called The Secret. And it's it's a bunch of nonsense. The thing that scares me is that more people believe in the law of attraction, you know, than the law of evolution or the you know yeah. or certainly are, are aware of it and. That's a problem because, as you say, unless you commit to actually taking action to persistent pursuit of uh, of a goal, then you know it's just. And they've done studies like this. Oh, I'm gonna lose you know 10 pounds before New Year's uh, Day or whatever. Uh, then they, they're part of your brain actually receives a reward from that from that statement as if you've already accomplished that feat. And so it actually is demotivational in that, you know, why should I try to lose 10 pounds? I already lost 10 pounds. So I think you're right. And I think it is good to have competition. I don't want to suggest that competition is bad. I mean, there used to be laws again, you know, laws. There used to be kind of a code in, say, baseball where let's say the beloved, uh, you know, the beloved San Diego Padres are playing the, the, the hated Los Angeles Dodgers, you know, huge rivalry here. They, the players were forbidden to have dinner together and go out, you know, in the town here or LA or whatever, because it, it took away a little bit of that competitive fire and spirit. Nowadays, you can't, you can't forbid them to do anything probably. Uh, but anyway, this was in kind of a, a code of, now I think that's actually good that they should have a little bit of, of, uh, of a swagger when they are, are going against some other team and, and that they really should feel like we're the best and we're going to prove it and like you said yeah we'll go ahead and win three nobel prizes for me it was kind of bittersweet and that it was it was deeply kind of interconnected with uh kind of wanting to receive the 
you know, approbation of my father, my late father, who, you know, really was a was a was a brilliant scientist and and really held Nobel Prize winners on this huge pedestal and inculcated that in me. And at the time when I started graduate school, actually the you know a a man by the name of Russell Hulse, who was a graduate student at the time, he made his Nobel worthy discovery. In 1993, he was awarded it, but he made the discovery when he was, you know, your age probably now. And it was my age back then. And I thought, wow, it's amazing. I could actually do something that would be as close to legendary idol status as you could achieve in the world of science. And that became, you know, a big part of my animating goal for a better part of a decade. Uh, but it's no longer in that realm. I, I do believe that the privilege of being a scientist and the freedom and academic rigor that we can pursue to solve puzzles that, you know, you don't get paid very much. You know, I'm a state employee uh, at the University of California. You know, I, I could get paid more. You could get paid more, certainly going to Google or doing whatever. Um, we do it in part because we get, we, we, we love what we do. And, the, and getting paid is, is important. And salaries are important. So I actually think the main beneficiaries of the Nobel Prize are may not even be the scientists, but but the Nobel Committee and the Nobel name and institution itself. And, and there's many examples why I, I say so that I describe in the book. And I, I think you know it's it's natural that people you know we are you know, many of us are Type A personalities and we we do want to achieve great success. I think there's that's great and that's a fundamental part of being a human being. But when it becomes cutthroat, when it becomes you know, almost exclusionary, like you cannot, you cannot, we will not work with you, we will not collaborate with you, we will keep the data private and not share it with you. Those kinds of things, I think, bring out the worst impulses in scientists rather than the best. Right. Yeah. Now, I, I have heard of The Secret before. Yeah. Uh, I I actually, when I was like 14 years old, I was quite infatuated with that idea. I was infatuated with it not because i thought that it was true in some way but i was infatuated with it because i think that the secret isn't at all a secret it is actually can be used i think as a recipe and i try to use it as a recipe in the sense that there's no mysticism i'm not going to create a vision board but i personally think that i am more motivated and I can achieve more when I do put out a lot of confidence into the universe, when sure. I do like exude this, this world champion mindset. And um, back to the, the, the football player analogy, if you just say, I want to be a good football player, that's like me saying, I want to be a good scientist. And it carries with it no credence. It doesn't mean anything. But I can make right. it mean something by – if I'm the football player, I say I don't want to be a good football player. I want to be a good wide receiver. I don't just want to be a good wide receiver. I want to play in the NFL and I want to win – the Super Bowl. Right. There. Now you've given your dream, your your secret, you've given that goal, I want to be a good football player. You've actually given it a concrete set of steps. And that for me is the same thing as saying, I don't want to just be a good physicist. I want to be a good astrophysicist. I want to get my PhD. Right. I want to get a, a right. Exactly. What how am I gonna what are the what are the yes. steps that I'm gonna take and, to accomplish that? Right. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I, I tell people, and, and I've told my undergraduate professors this, and I've told my, my graduate professors, I'm mm -hmm. going to win three Nobel Prizes. That does not mean that I want to go out there and win more Nobel Prizes than anyone. Shh. Would I take that? Yeah. Well, after reading your book, I don't even know if I want it, right? I think I want revision. <laughs> but the point is, I say that because I, that's the only way for a scientist to convey the magnitude of the impact that they want to have on the field. That is the Super Bowl. That is the world championship. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I certainly, you know, felt that way in, in my past and I don't begrudge people for, for feeling that way. As long as you say, what am I going to use this for? Like if I say, I want to be, you know, the greatest father in the world, you, uh, you know, I have five children now, thank goodness. And, and I love them to, to pieces. If I say, I want to be the greatest father in the world so I can win, you know, get on Oprah and, you know, that's really not the right motivation. If I say I want to, like, inculcate values in my children that sustain them, you know, throughout their lives and beyond, and, and here are the values, concrete plans and steps that I'm going to take to achieve this action every day, then, you know, then, then, then that is putting it into reality rather than just, well, here, here's a plan and, and, you know, this is what I want because everybody wants. Everyone wants to be rich. Everyone wants to be famous or a lot of people do. And I think, you know, but famous for what and, and rich for doing what? I mean, you could, as I said, you could do a lot more things that would bring you a lot more fame potentially, fortune potentially than being a graduate student. But there's something where you're hoping that your purpose will align with your situation and maybe a little bit of luck and those two things will have this, you know, kind of flow state that will will enable you to achieve greatness. And it's just the tangible benefit of it is easily and clearest visualized by the Nobel Prize. And and that's something, you know, again, it really was an affliction that I suffered from a long time ago. This kind of, you know, because I was actually told things like you have to get a Nobel Prize to be, you know, like the highest level of faculty in the University of California, which which is, you know, partially true to get tenure. Um, you know, certainly to be, and, and I had people that, you know, young, young people that read the book and said things like, well, I, I dropped out of astronomy because uh, I knew I wasn't going to win a Nobel Prize. And my father, you know, told me I'm not going to be a good scientist unless I win the Nobel Prize. And I actually had a woman tell me that. And, and, you know, when you think about what are these effects having on people, this kind of idolatry, as I identified in the book, along with the Nobel Prize and becoming sort of a religion for scientists, I think those are some of the dangerous aspects of the Nobel Prize. I, I, do, I do fundamentally agree with you. Uh, I do want to remember that I'm, I was trying to go through these, these five things, but we're just having such a fascinating conversation that it's fine. <laughs> Yeah. You mentioned something and I was on the phone with my mother the other day and I was talking to her about the podcast coming up and I said that I was interviewing Brian Keating and and I read your book and something in your book that fascinated me with, about the parallels of our lives were the fact that our biological fathers were not in our pictures growing up. And mm -hmm. I was wondering fundamentally – and you sort of mentioned it in passing, but I would actually like to talk about it because I think the book is very real. So why not make this very real? Yeah. Um, you and I have had the same passion, the passion to be on the top of the world for whatever motivation it is. Uh, for me, it's it's partially to be the greatest scientist. But when I truly dig deep into my subconscious, I think that there's a little bit there that's like I want attention. And the reason I want attention is because when I was a kid, I lacked – a very primal attention. I didn't have it. And I'm wondering if if your ambitions were carved by the same thing. Yeah, well, definitely there was this notion of of um, objective, you know, dominance or objective success that was very important to me and wanting to, you know, having a little bit of a chip on my shoulder and wanting to sort of prove to my father that I had this ability that, you know, transcended you know, sort of the ordinary and, and was so superlative. 
um, it's funny to look back on it now and, 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 you know, maybe I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that, you know, I'd recommend my experience to anybody, but looking back on my life and, and how every step that was taken, even though it seemed impenetrably difficult at the time actually led me to where I am now, where the greatest accomplishment I think I have has nothing to do with being a scientist, but, but everything to do with being a teacher and, and really seeing, you know, that this act of teaching is really an act of love. And, and you're a student, maybe you've been a TA, maybe, you know, I'm sure you've taught people, maybe more junior people in your lab or your research group. Uh, and you certainly will. Again, I remember reminded of a great saying by a mentor of mine uh, in Russian, the word scientist means a person who was taught. And I think that that's, you know, very, very interesting because you can't teach in an environment of hatred, like, you know, if I start screaming at my kids and, yeah, this is the way you add, you know, do algebra, you know, they're not going to learn anything, mm-hmm. you know, whereas if it's done in, in, with a spirit of love and, and compassion and tenderness, you can actually communicate a lot more. And so maybe, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but, you know, maybe looking back, well, I want to be a teacher more than anything. I want to have that intimate relationship, intellectual intimacy, you know, to say that, you know, with my students, with my children and, you know, whether they be biological or ideological. And I think that maybe it's compensating for something I missed out on. I don't know. Uh, But in the end, I know I can be a force for good in the world of science by espousing these values that that um, that uh, uh, of of you know being generous with teaching and 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 also expecting to learn so much from my students. Yeah, no, I I agree with you, and I I went down the same the same path as an undergraduate. I, I worked in a planetarium, and I probably spoke to thousands of people, uh, <laughs> low orders of thousands, maybe like fifteen hundred over the course <laughs> over the course of my undergraduate career, and and I do really find like a, a a passion and interest in in watching people grow alongside me watching them learn as i'm sort of instilling that information onto them that's very important before we get sidetracked even further yep. let me bring up number two the second change that you think should be made uh in the way the nobel prize is is governed or given uh, award the physics prize to groups of any size okay yeah and do you think this should apply to all the all the Nobel prizes as well before we even continue or just the physics? Yeah. It already all does to the it already does to the peace prize. Um uh, so that's, you know, that's something they've already recognized that, you know, peace is a is is an endeavor that requires numerous people, uh but it's not like experimental physics is not. Uh, so I think it's kind of strange that they keep this completely arbitrary, not written into the original will by, by uh, or the original foundational statutes. Alfred Nobel actually said only one person can win each prize. Uh, and then so they immediately jettison that for purposes that I speculate on in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but in the end, of course, you know, when you look at a project that's, you know, takes or people, can you honestly say that, you know, say LIGO was really enabled by, by you know, there were four primary con- contributors, you know, Ron Drever, Kip Thorne, Ray Weiss, Barry Barish, but, you know, there was a thousand plus people on the a discovery paper that resulted in the Nobel Prize. So can you honestly say that if any of those were missing, uh, that would be, uh, that this experiment would have had the exact degree of success? I say no. Uh, and the proof is that they included them in the research and the proposal and the paper, etc. And so I think that the physics prize should do exactly what the Peace Prize does, which is give, say, half the award to, you know, four or five major contributors, whatever number. And now, you know, that could be clearly said to have 
to have made the biggest contribution. In that case, it would have been you know, three living people, plus I think they should award it posthumously. I think it's ludicrous that they don't. Uh, and then the other half of the prize uh, go to the remaining thousand people, and they divide up the money. It's not like the money is a big Im- animating impulse for winners. There are prizes that are worth a lot more than the Nobel Prize. So it's really the prestige in having this, and I think that would be great, especially for young people in the field. I tend to agree with you. I I look at the collaboration. We're we're very much in the age of collaborative science. There's yeah. no way around that. It's I talked with with some people on the podcast before about this, but we're no longer at a stage where you can set up experiments and get revolutionary physics in your garage. That's that's over. Maybe right. if you really really understand some fundamental process incredibly well and somehow no one else in the entire history of human beings have understood it the way you do maybe you can devise something in in your garage but the vast majority of people are not going to do that and i would say that we probably will never see that again right we're very much in the age of collaboration and it's for two reasons now you mentioned them in in the book uh individually maybe you mentioned more but these are the two that come to my mind number one money not everyone can be getting funding. We need mm-hmm. to fund big projects and employ lots of people on those big projects. And then the second one is that science is more efficient this way when people are yeah. able to work together to get things done, more so than having 10 people working on on the same project but trying to get it done quicker than, than their neighbor. That's not an efficient way because if all 10 people put their work together, then you get the project done in an incredibly incredibly quick amount of time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, exactly. So having the resources, uh, you know, is also human resources, and neglecting the resources, you know, you just as you couldn't accomplish LIGO without the billion dollars in public funding that was given to it, um, you know, so too with the human resources, where each person has you know infinite value in a sense, uh, then you know the question is who, whether or not it could really be accomplished has to be addressed and you know the nobel prize i had people say well you know the nobel prize is a private organization they can do whatever they want and they're missing the point i'm not saying this for the benefit of future winners alone i'm saying this for the benefit of the nobel prize and that if it does not reform you know according to the proposals that I make in the book, which, by the way, are, have been backed by many other people. I'm not, I'm not the originator of, of really any of these. There's only one thing I think is truly novel, and that's the proposal that prizes go to serendipitous discoveries primarily. But, but besides that, most of the other five or you know four other proposals are, are pretty well agreed upon by everyone in the community, except for the Nobel Prize Committee. Um, so I'm really doing it to protect them and so that the prize can continue rather than, you know, crucify it so that it no longer exists. So I'm hoping they'll take heed of it. I'm not sanguine about it, but, but, um, let's hope that they do. Do you think that there's a distinct possibility of the Nobel prize not reforming, not changing their ways and having a new foundation come in and try to revitalize these, yeah, these new absolutely. ideas? That's already happening with the Breakthrough Prize. So the Breakthrough Prize in fundamental physics, and it's given out in many other fields, is worth three times more. It can be shared by multiple people. It can be given for discoveries made long ago that were neglected by the Nobel Prize. A recent one was given just two weeks ago 
to Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who discovered pulsars and for which her advisor won the Nobel Prize for her discovery um, in 1974. And they awarded her the Breakthrough Prize, $3 million prize, which is you know, many dozens of times more than the money that he got. But more, it's the recognition of and, and correcting the way that scientific history is recorded. That's what I think is so important and gets so distorted by the Nobel Prize is that it rewrites the way that science is accomplished. And I, I think you should, you'll notice, and you know, it's kind of like putting an earworm in you right now, but you know, if you go through different classes, et cetera, you'll find sometimes that professors will talk about, well, so-and-so won a Nobel Prize, or if you look at your lab classes from undergraduate, uh, they were basically replicas of Nobel Prize winning experiments of the 1900s. Many of them were. Uh, we do that here in UC San Diego. Not, not by intention, it's just that's the way that science kind of gets recorded. And I think it's it's it, that's the sense that the obligation lies with the Nobel Prize to ensure that the scientific history is accurately recorded. Yeah, I yeah, a lot of the the undergraduate labs that I've been a part of are exactly as you say, sort of recreations of Nobel winning stuff. But I think it's also that way because the those Nobel winning experiments are are just gen, genuinely easy sort of experiments to set up and do now exactly now they become so right oh brendan i i do want to say i do need to leave in about seven minutes okay that's fine yeah. um okay we'll, 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 you want to talk about the cosmology a little bit yeah we we can i i mentioned this as we got on i i i wanted to get on get you on and talk about cosmology but your book just made me made me like go in nobel mode and and be really <laughs> interested in that so yeah, so cosmology, the book title is Losing the Nobel Prize. So why don't you sort of give an introduction to the people and how you did just that, how you lost the how you got excluded from any possibility of, of, of receiving it. Yeah, so really the title is a, is a double entendre, as they say. It's really an, a story of how I encountered the Nobel Prize on several occasions, uh, first by kind of authoring or co-authoring uh, uh, an experiment called BICEP that later became the subject of very intense Nobel whispers, Nobel screams, in 2014 when we announced that we had discovered the first direct evidence for cosmic inflation at a press conference held at Harvard University Center for, um, Center for Astrophysics. And this discovery was hailed by, you know, Nobel laureates in the audience and, and pundits in newspapers and headlines around the world as being Nobel worthy. And now I had founded the experiment but had uh, been basically kicked out of the leadership role that I had originally had uh, for reasons I describe in the book that owed themselves, I think, in part to a lack of, of, of collaboration and, and a competition within the, the world of science and cosmology in particular, which is incredibly competitive, uh, because of, you know, kind of a sense that I was working on a competitor's experiment and that that might lead me to some conflict of interest. So I was excluded from the experiment whose origina- you know, the original version of which I had created as, a, as what's called a postdoc at Caltech. And then the other meaning of the title of the book is you know, that the Nobel Prize, which is society's most sacred cow, maybe it should be lost in its current form and to be gotten rid of in a reform and then re- resurrected in a reformed way, which would reflect the way science is done today, not in 1896 when the Alfred's no- Nobel's will went into effect upon his death. And that thread of the book came from my an encounter with being a nominator. I was an invited nominator to nominate the winners of the Nobel Prize 
in uh, in 2016 for the 2016 year, which was just a few months after the discovery that we had announced uh, to great fanfare and Nobel whispers was disconfirmed and, and essentially retracted. Uh, and that was a very humiliating for me personally to be asked to nominate people for, to win the award that I had so often hoped would lead to my own award. So it'd be like, you know, you have this great podcast um, uh, and, you know, somebody says, well, I don't want to go on your podcast, but can you recommend some some better podcasts, Brendan? <laughs> you know, would you mind doing that for me? Uh, or, <laughs> you know, or you don't get into RIT and it's your, and you know your dream school rejects you. They say, "Oh, do you know anyone who's smarter than you, better than you, Brendan?" Because we'd really like to invite that. So that's and and when I encountered this invitation to nominate the winners, it actually set me off on a scholar's quest to understand what did Alfred Nobel intend with these prizes back a hundred plus years ago, and then what had become of them in the intervening century plus since. So that's the second meaning of the book's title in a in in, in a nutshell. Yeah, and oh, and by the way, I'm pretty sure a couple of REUs or grad schools did do that to me. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. but yeah, it 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 is a, a fascinating story. In closing, a fascinating story that you take us through, and I think that the the actual content about cosmology is 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 a fantastic introduction. I think that there's a lot of books out there that tackle this "what is cosmology" sort of thing, and I think that you do a mm-hmm. great job of. of of doing that. And there's also, and I don't know if you meant, meant dust to be this sort of, of metaphor, but, but the book talks a lot about dust. And yeah. as you, as you read the book, this sort of fogginess in your brain about cosmology, this dust, if you will, sort of gets wiped away. And, and it truly is a very clear introduction into the history and the future of cosmology. And the future is collaborative. How are the collaborative efforts going? Collaborative efforts in cosmology, uh, is that what you're asking about? Yes. Yeah. I think it's, um, it's, it's actually only getting more and more collaborative that we have this opportunity to now, with the aid of the incredible triumphs of the BICEP experiment, I don't want your listeners to think it was a failure or we were made a blunder a la you know, detecting faster-than-light neutrinos or cold fusion, nothing of the sort. In fact, we have more confidence, the BICEP team has more confidence than ever in the reality of the signal. It's just its origin uh, remains you know, kind of inconclusive. And thanks to BICEP2, the community now knows the pathway that we must pursue in order to potentially clear our eyes and our vision of dust and the, and the, and the galaxy to peer through it remove it, you know, without having a giant space vacuum cleaner. Uh, we'll remove it using data analysis techniques that are really pioneered by BICEP and the, the brilliant minds that are, you know, leading it. And so I think uh, that has led to new collaborations in the field that have hundreds and hundreds of people, including the Simons Observatory, which I now lead, and the so-called CMB Stage 4 experiment, led by John Carlstrom at Chicago and Julian Burrill at Lawrence Berkeley Lab. And these are phenomenal uh, collections of the world's brightest scientists, all engaged with the furtherance of the massive, you know, titanic accomplishments of Bicep Two. Yes. Uh, well, it's great to to hear that that cosmology, in particular, is getting more collaborative. I, that's exactly what I hope to hear when I talk to you. And uh, I think, with that being said, Brian, we are vast. We are running out of time. Uh, because humans, although the universe has been around for 14 billion years, we, we have tight schedules here on Earth. So with that being said, Brian, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you, and we're out. Thanks for listening, everyone. Make sure to leave a rating or a review if you enjoyed it, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss 
any new episodes.